Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Connecting critical infrastructure to the rest of the business and even to the public internet brings real benefits. But it also comes with serious security risks. Until fairly recently, operational technology and critical systems ran in isolation, usually on their own specialist operating systems. This largely isolated them from malware threats. But now, most systems use standard building blocks. This makes critical infrastructure as vulnerable as any other part of the enterprise system, unless we take steps to protect it. And nowhere is IT infrastructure more critical than in healthcare. Our guests today are both experts in protecting healthcare systems. Jonathan Langer is COO at Clarity Medigate, which focuses on securing the Internet of Things in healthcare. And Adam Zoller is cybersecurity lead for Providence, a system of compassionate healthcare providers on the west coast of the United States. So how does the threat to healthcare systems fit into the wider risks faced by CNI operators? Attacking critical infrastructure through cyber means is really one of the few, if not the only, way to cause physical outcomes with a cyber attack. So when we talk about potential outcomes of um, the threat against critical infrastructure, it's very severe. Now, attacking critical infrastructure is also very difficult, though, because you have to have an intimate knowledge not only of IT systems, but oftentimes of the industrial control systems that really control critical infrastructure um, across sectors. And a lot of those systems, although they do rely on commercial operating systems, have their own intricacies in how they operate. So I'd say, you know, the threat is is real. The, the risk is there, um, if you will. The risk, the risk is, is very real. Um, there have been attacks in the past that have targeted critical infrastructure, notably attacks like Stuxnet. Um, and then recently, you know, um, less severe attacks, less targeted attacks, I should say, um, against critical infrastructure that we faced within the healthcare sector, denial of service attacks conducted by um, killnet actors targeting the healthcare sector in the United States. And then you have really everything in between hacktivists, you have um, organized crime, you have nation states, you have, I mean, every type of attacker has some sort of um, um gain to be had out of attacking critical infrastructure. So I'd say the risk is very real. The outcomes can be very severe. Um, the barrier to entry tends to be a little bit higher than attacking an enterprise IT system, but the risk is very real. What's the motivation to attack critical infrastructure? And I appreciate there's probably more than one motivation. It really depend on the um, actor that's going after critical infrastructure. If you have Nation states, uh, nation state level threat actors, um, you know, their motivations tend to be um, disruption, sowing confusion in support of geopolitical ambitions or um, potentially in support of um, wartime activities. So I mentioned denial of service attacks against the healthcare sector recently. Um, those denial of service attacks were conducted by the Russian group or um, loosely affiliated hacktivist group, um, Killnet, targeting the healthcare industry. Um, in response to Western countries providing arms to Ukraine in the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And if you would have asked me a couple of years ago if a U.S.-based hospital system was going to be dragged into the Russia-Ukraine crisis, I would have said, you know, it'd probably take a pretty severe escalation for us to be dragged into that conflict, but here we are. 
And then you have criminal organizations going after critical infrastructure for the purposes of ransoming and uh, financial gain. Um, so, you know, for criminal organizations, it tends to be for financial gain. For hacktivist organizations, it's it's supporting geopolitical initiatives or, or you know, particular causes that they support, and those vary depending on the hacktivist group or the the hacker. Um, and then, you know, for the um, lone wolves or just individual hackers, it's can I do it? You know, it's it's proving themselves. It's getting their name out there. It's potentially going after bug bounties. Do you think the motivation of cyber attackers, criminal cyber attackers, has changed to the point now where they are more willing to attack because they may want to extort the ransom or create disruption or other effects or unconsciously that they're just not bothered by that second order effect of damaging potentially a healthcare system, potentially a transportation system, and ultimately even causing a loss of life as long as it suits their financial or other objectives. It's hard to bucket all threat actors into one sweeping statement. I think if you look at certain threat actor groups, if you start to categorize threat actors based on their their capabilities, their intent, what you're going to see is there's some groups that um, aren't willing to attack hospital systems, for example. And they there were some groups back during the pandemic that said overtly, we're going to, they, they were ransomware groups. Their business model was ransomware. They said overtly, they weren't going to attack hospital systems because of the global pandemic and the potential for loss of life. But then you had other um, threat actor groups that um, appeared to not care. And I can tell you um, from firsthand experience that we we were targeted aggressively by cyber actors. And I can't get in the mind of necessarily every cyber attacker that comes after us. But what I will say is um, when it comes to intent um, and, and cyber criminal organizations, um, they have one thing in common, which is they're all out to make money. So I think at the end of the day, if they're, um, if they're operating toward that end goal of making money, I think a lot of criminal organizations, I mean, they're already criminals to begin with. They're already conducting cyber attacks to begin with. It's not a huge leap for them to, just attack whatever system they possibly can for um, to pad their bottom line. Um, but if you look at the nation state side of the house, um, so that I was talking about cyber criminals before, if you look at the nation state side of the house, they're governed by a different set of rules and standards than, uh, or really a set of rules and standards internationally that a criminal organization wouldn't necessarily need to adhere to where a nation state needs to look at it as, well, if I conduct a cyber attack, that is, cyber activity to deny, disrupt, degrade, or destroy an information system that potentially knocks out critical infrastructure or causes loss of life in another country. The question they have to ask themselves is, is that an act of war um, that's, that's being conducted by a nation state, a foreign nation state against another nation state? And that has some serious consequences associated with it geopolitically, and, and you can imagine uh, otherwise. So, so I think if you look at, you know, criminals in general, they're out to make money. Nation states are out to protect their interests, but uh, different motivations, um, different levels of, uh, levels of capability. And I think, um, I think you're going to see kind of the, the broad spectrum of uh, willingness, if you will, to attack and potentially cause disruption or loss of life, depending on what the outcomes are they're going after. I think with with regard to the criminals, what we're seeing is that the level of audacity is is rising and the moral standards are just getting lower. So every time, even with one group isn't isn't willing to attack, you see another group that that is is willing to attack critical infrastructure type of uh, a type of organization and kind of lowering the bar. Uh, I, I agree with Adam's comments about the, the governing uh, constraints that, that nation states have um, that make this more um, 
more controllable because of the the international repercussions. Uh, but unfortunately, that law doesn't really apply in many cases to the to the cyber criminals. And I think that is uh, that is something that unfortunately we're seeing today in many cases. I think the one thing that we're seeing with regard to the level of difficulty, which still remains uh, higher than just regular IT systems, is the the connectivity trend. Uh, so Adam knows this uh, much better than I do, obviously. But in in healthcare, we're seeing more and more IOMT devices, medical devices per bed connected. That's definitely a trend that that we are seeing. And even if we take non-healthcare type of environments, just industrial factories, things of that nature, even in, even when we're talking about those types of industries, we're seeing more connectivity as well, just because of the efficiencies related uh, or associated with these types of uh, devices and, and them being connected. And just the value of the data is high. Uh, so I think that this opens up an opportunity uh, to Adam's point, to all sorts of attackers. For nation states, it makes their life easier. For criminals, it opens up a, a new opportunity to gain a, this, this pretty valuable data, especially in healthcare, when we're talking about PHI. Um, and also just for, for ransomware types of attacks, say, if you're a criminal. Uh, so I would say that uh, the bar was, was high. It's a little bit lower now because of the connectivity trend, and it attracts all types of attackers. So really then the change in the how is that connectivity piece? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I think that it just uh, it made things a little bit easier and, um, and the motivation to get this type of data uh, remains very high. Yeah, and I'd say also over the last, I mean, and Jonathan, again, feel free to chime in with your thoughts on this, but over the last couple of decades, we've, we've seen the convergence of software from what was a very heterogeneous approach to the software environment to now a more homogenous approach to the software environment where a lot of these critical infrastructure systems are leveraging windows and other commercial software loads where you know in the past if they were using a proprietary operating system that was only used on one piece of equipment you wouldn't necessarily have to worry about all the malware and all the exposures potentially um, that you would on your enterprise IT systems. But now with those systems running Windows, potentially critical infrastructure systems are vulnerable to the same attacks that you see across your business systems. So if you have people that are checking email on the same network segment as your critical infrastructure control systems, you're exposing yourself to the same types of disruptions and attacks and outages that you face in your enterprise IT environment. I totally agree with what Adam said. In fact, um, a pretty considerable amount of devices that that we're tracking through our through our software and just through discussion with other leaders in this space, there's definitely more reliance on 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 Windows or type of open source commercial type of uh, operating systems. And I think what exacerbates the situation even further is that when you're talking about medical devices or critical infrastructure in general, because these are real time systems. More often than not, the, the the operating system isn't isn't patched. Maybe it's even end of life in in some cases, which makes the 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 ease of exploitation that much that much easier for for the attackers, um, as opposed to other devices that are patched and, and are updated. And I'll say even one more thing to that extent is that what we're seeing or what we know is happening is that sometimes even just, just because some of these devices are indeed running on commercial operating systems, the attacks sometimes are opportunistic. So the attacker might even might even not know 
that it's a medical device or a PLC or, or whatnot or some some sort of OT device. He's just trying to target the old uh, Windows systems. And then when, when they encounter a medical device, then there's more benefit for them. But it's not necessarily a targeted attack on a medical device. And how much worse has the problem become because we've started to connect the operational technology with the business technology? So your email systems and the standard PCs with the browsers are now being hooked up to the same network as the critical infrastructure, the medical devices, the manufacturing equipment and all those other things that previously, as you correctly pointed out, were quite isolated, not necessarily by design from a security point of view, but just because that's the way they were built. They were built to be standalone pieces of technology. I'd say maybe just based on what I'm seeing, but I'm curious to see what Adam is seeing as well, of course, is that I think it varies based on industry or even based on organizations. So some organizations have introduced segmentation or some sort of zero trust or parts of zero trust architecture into their networks. And in this case, in, from, a, from a virtual standpoint, the devices are, are segregated, at least to a certain extent. So while you have business systems and IOMT and OT all connected, they're in fact on logically separated networks. In some organizations, it, it's not as it's not as as tidy as others. So the networks tend to be a little bit more flat. And in this case, there is indeed more um, more risk attached to this type of a scenario. So like an attacker can, can let's say, reach a computer, uh, the classic use case with some sort of phishing attempt. And from that uh, internet-facing computer, they may be able to reach a, a, an OT device. Uh, that's a non-segregated type or non-segmented type, type of network. So I'd say it varies on industry, varies on, on security maturity of that specific organization. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'd say um, to add on to that, like any... Um, risk equation, there's real benefits. I want to mention, you know, make sure to mention this because I think oftentimes when we talk as cybersecurity practitioners about the risks, the threats that we face, we tend to omit the um, business value and the um, efficiencies that are gained by connecting systems. So yes, the, the risk is very real to connecting systems. The operation on commercial operating systems and using commercial software is very real. However, the efficiencies that we gain as businesses by connecting those systems and operating those systems in a modern fashion is very real and very quantifiable to a lot of businesses. So not losing sight of that is important. Having these systems connected to the same um, network segments is obviously a bad practice. Having these systems uh, be unpatched on the same network segments as your business systems is a bad practice. And I think to Jonathan's points, when you look industry to industry, um, you're going to see very different approaches to segmenting, to securing these systems, um, to uh, very different maturity levels from industry to industry. And even company to company, there's some companies that um, take security very seriously within uh, very loosely regulated industries. Um, and there's other companies that are within hev heavily regulated industries that don't take security that seriously and, and everything in between. I think some of it depends on the regulatory landscape of the industry. You see the industries with the tightest regulatory burden tend to have the most mature security programs, but not always. And then the more loosely regulated industries and the industries that rely on the most um, uptime on their systems that don't necessarily have the downtime windows to do patching and maintenance or to re-architect their networks that were built at a time where these attacks were really weren't um, at the forefront of a lot of people's thoughts. Those industries tend to um, lag behind in, in cybersecurity maturity. 
And then the last thing that I'll mention is, you know, there's a, a saying that the safest time to eat at a restaurant is after they have a foodborne, foodborne illness scare. And it, it tends to be fairly similar in cybersecurity where, you know, the safest companies oftentimes have had a breach or a cybersecurity event recently that opened their eyes to the security risks that exist in their environment. You know, I'm, I tend to be of the mindset that a, an ounce of preparation is worth a pound of care. So our organization takes security very seriously. Um, but uh, a lot of organizations are very reactive still when it comes to preventing cybersecurity threats. And you're saying then that the discrete systems, the CNI systems, should be logically separated from the business systems, but then there are benefits as well for being able to have insight over what they're doing. And I'm guessing some of those benefits are around telemetry and measurement. So whether that's tying the health of the systems into something like an ERP application or a maintenance application, or being able to surface medical data more easily, removing steps, removing manual re-entry of data, which can be quite a problem, and having more immediate insights into either the health of a patient or the health of a system in, in say, a utility, an energy generation company, that type of thing. Are those the type of business cases that are pushing these systems closer together? And if I can add another question to that, is that a conscious choice by operators? So whether that's a hospital or a utility or a telco, or is that something that's happening as a result of convergence in IT? So it's almost being imposed upon them from outside by the way that our technology is changing. It's a little bit of both. Um, in the healthcare industry, we tend to be very reliant on third parties to um, perform maintenance on our medical equipment, for example, uh, to provide us clinical applications um, for our um, caregivers to use in patient care. You know, anytime you introduce a third party into the equation, they're not going to understand the intricacies of necessarily how your network is managed or how your organization manages its IT ecosystem. I'd say we do our best to keep things segmented, um, both logically and or physically if we can. Um, but it's not a perfect approach. I don't think any organization, especially in the healthcare sector, has a perfect approach. When it comes to how we got to this point, though, historically, you know, I'd say up until, you know, a decade ago, maybe less than a decade ago, the threat of cyber attacks against industrial devices wasn't really well known. Um, and there weren't really a lot of very highly publicized attacks against industrial control environments until, you know, the last decade decade and a half. But if you look at a lot of the equipment, the IT equipment in critical infrastructure owners and operators environments, and I'm talking industry, industry-wide, um, not necessarily within healthcare, not necessarily within one company, um, but industry-wide, you look at um, this equipment, it's designed to be deployed and operated for oftentimes 10, 15, 20 years plus with very little need to maintain it with very little thought given, you know, 15 years ago to patching and updates, um, to these systems. So I think how we got to the point is, um, or how we got to this point is the threat environment has evolved far more rapidly than the need to modernize operating systems historically. So now we're in a place where we have critical infrastructure that has a tremendous amount of technology debt. Um, that historically hasn't been operated with necessarily security in mind. Um, but again, the threat landscapes changed our risk posture as you know, all industries have, have changed and we have to approach this very differently than we have in the past. And maybe one thing to, to jump in and add, uh, I, I think it was just as an example of, uh, of the value of a business case, at least one that I, that I had the opportunity to observe while we were in the, the, the pandemic, 
all of a sudden, even in healthcare, there was a, there was a need to introduce new type of technology uh, that would be able to accommodate the new the new requirements. And one of those one of those uh, technologies was was telehealth or even remote patient monitoring to a certain extent. And all of a sudden, even like kind of overnight or almost overnight, you saw how new technology that sometimes resides on the same networks is interconnected, is all is all over. It can help solve a, a new situation and deliver care in given given the constraints that were introduced. Uh, so I think that's just one one example of a of value business value that can be driven through convergence and connectivity. And of course, there are many, 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 many others. Say the the value is very clear in my in my eyes. The security risks uh, that's the the focus in terms of mitigation. What should organisations look to do to guard against these attacks and particularly those lateral moves between business systems or lower grade systems that may not have sufficient protection and potentially also their supply chain and then those parts of the business which are absolutely critical whether that's critical for patient care critical for other infrastructural transportation or telecoms or whichever tasks we pick i think it takes a multifaceted approach so um, what we're doing at providence is um we banded together a group of business leaders that um, all have a say in um, either accepting or um, or not cybersecurity risks. And we as a collective organization that's made up of executives from human resources, from finance, from supply chain, from clinical care, cybersecurity, technology, et cetera, we bubble up the highest priority risk items and have conversations about the risks associated with strategic business moves, You know, the adoption of telehealth, for example. And we talk about the specific risks associated with that. And then we choose um, how we approach that from a compensating controls perspective or from a risk acceptance perspective. So getting together executive leadership for buy-in around cybersecurity risks is critical. So you can have open conversations about that as an organization and discover what's your risk tolerance as a team? What are you comfortable with accepting? The other piece is modernizing how organizations do contracts and, and um, the legal process around bringing new technologies or capabilities into their environment. Historically, contracts a decade plus ago, um, when a lot of these templates were created, didn't, didn't include robust provisions for cybersecurity and data protection in them. We've completely redone our contracts process and our supply chain process at Providence to include things like third-party risk assessments, third-party architecture assessments to make sure that we understand the risks that we're accepting um, when we deploy new capabilities into our environment and that we can hold our vendors accountable for selling us um, secure capabilities on day one so that we're not increasing our technical debt by bringing new technologies into our environment. And then I think organizations have to take a look through the rear view mirror and um, really look at um, the technical debt that exists in their, their organizations in their IT ecosystem and come up with a um, systematic approach to reduce and eliminate that technical debt or segment that technical debt in a way where you can continue operating your business, um, but allow that uh, and allow those um, capabilities to exist that introduce risk or are risky, um, but not create a, a situation where they're introducing risk to other capabilities in your environment. And what I mean by that is to some degree, you're going to have to um, accept a level of risk and operations in your in your systems. 
it's just the way it, it's just, you know, the nature of the world that we live in. So you have to come up with an approach to segment systems from each other to discover and, and inventory your, your IT ecosystem and to segment those systems in a way where they don't introduce risk to each other, especially if you rely on third parties. And I think the, the interesting thing and in what Adam highlighted is that uh, of course it's a, it's a combination of best practices, but the interesting thing is that in order to be successful when it comes to critical infrastructure security, we really do need some some form of collaboration between the folks that make the OT devices, the, the manufacturers, the medical device manufacturers, whichever the industry we're operating in, the, the enterprises themselves, meaning the healthcare delivery organizations, the factories or whatnot, and, and of course the security vendors. So it really takes that, that trio in my eyes in order to be successful, and we gotta we gotta select the best practices that that all parties can can commit to. So Adam mentioned contracting and secure design on the on the manufacturer side. So making sure that you're getting a, a secure by design type of product that based on the contract is also regularly patched or monitored or or whatnot. And then on the enterprise level. It's all about selecting the group of, of best practices, and there are, of course, many. It's not one single thing, but I, I would say that in my eyes, the primary pillars are segmentation. We kind of highlighted that today. That's obviously something that reduces risk significantly. And then it's about the, the technical debt that, that Adam highlighted. It's about understanding which devices are indeed outdated or not patched or end of life or whatnot. But I think the tricky thing is, and kind of where the, the emphasis that I would put on here is selecting the devices that are most critical or most prioritized, because there are so many assets that are gonna be vulnerable. It's about honing in on the ones that are most important to do at that, at that single point in time in recognition that you're not gonna be able to, to patch them all at once. That's just not, not feasible. So getting the priority right, I would say is also key. And that involves pretty good pretty good risk assessment that is that is done on a continuous basis. And could we perhaps see or build a case for more collaboration between organizations in different industries, which are all part of the critical infrastructure landscape? Because there are learnings, and certainly there's learnings from this conversation today, but there are learnings between organizations in different sectors that have been attacked or, or managed to repel attacks or had to recover from attacks, and those could potentially be shared more widely. Uh, oh, yeah. In my, in my eyes, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of exciting things in, in my eyes that are happening right now in, in healthcare from a regulatory perspective. And there's indeed more dialogue between some of the stakeholders that I mentioned, the manufacturers, the, the HDOs, the security vendors, and so on. But I also do think, and I kind of have an opportunity to see this now in my in my role at Clarity, when I see organizations from all industries, there is a, a, a great opportunity in, in my eyes to, to share more information, more best practices, more architectures, more ideas between industries. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff that, that is happening in, in all areas and, and additional sharing, I think, would be, it would be encouraged. I think it would be very helpful in my eyes. Yeah, totally agree. Certainly cross-sector collaboration, especially between sectors that historically have a higher maturity level and sectors that traditionally have a lower maturity level so that we can learn from best practices um, from each other is, is very helpful. And then the only thing that I'd add on that is 
um, collaboration between um, critical infrastructure sectors and their respective governments um, in the countries that they reside in. So we're a U.S.-based healthcare system. We collaborate regularly with the FBI, Department of Justice, um, Department of Homeland Security on cybersecurity issues because um, I firmly believe that the only way that we can protect ourselves um, from these um, oftentimes foreign threat actors is by collaborating with the organizations in the federal government that are chartered to protect us from foreign adversaries. Um, the federal government doesn't have visibility into the attacks that we're facing as a system. Um, they don't have, because of privacy controls and, and governmental authority, they can't see the attacks occurring. But if we can give them insights into the attacks that occur against our system, potentially they can use that telemetry to not only protect other companies that they have communications with, but maybe pull other levers that they have access to um, politically to hold other governments accountable to uh, capturing these cyber criminals that are coming after us aggressively. Adam Zoller from Providence on the importance of collaboration with government agencies to counter attacks on CNI. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a follow-up to our recent programme looking at nation-state threats. Until then, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and, of course, on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.